Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast featuring New York sports talk and long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Got a good show for you this week. We are going to be talking MLB Hall of Fame inductions with friends of the podcast and editor of Baseball Digest, Rick Cerrone. I was happy to get Rick on this week because, obviously, he was with the Yankees when the most prominent member of the class, Derek Jeter, first came up. He was there through the dynasty run, so Rick's got some stories about Derek Jeter. Hopefully gets his thoughts on the induction and the other news around baseball as well. Show me the money also back this week. There is no pick this week for the Super Bowl because it's too early. We still got a lot of time to pick this game, but we're going to tell you, you ways of how to bet the game with the great Kevin Walsh Jr. Let's heard from him back in week 15 during the NFL picks. We're going to talk about, you know, the money line, the spread, the over-under, and my favorite, the prop bets. So all that good stuff with Kevin Walsh just a bit. Be sure you're locked into the other show for this week's two-minute drill where... I take a look at the season premiere of Curb Your Enthusiasm on HBO. Ten season came out firing on all cylinders. I can't wait to get to that. But we'll get it all started with this week's opening tip, where we recap the conference championship games right after this. Second and ten as that Tennessee defense drops back. Has long and tried to make a diving and tipped it by Holmes who tiptoes inside the ten. Still not out of this world touchdown Kansas City all right and we are back with this week's opening tip that call is her courtesy of CBS Sports is Jim Nance Patrick Mahomes with the incredible running sprinting tiptoeing the sideline 27 yard touchdown run in the second quarter as the Kansas City Chiefs are going back to the Super Bowl for the first time in 50 years. And once again, incredible story for the Chiefs. Fall behind early in this game on several occasions. They're down 10 nothing at Tennessee before you can blink. They're down 17-7 in the second half. But once again, Kansas City offense comes alive. 20 unanswered points for the second week in a row. This time it was not in a quarter. It took them a little longer to score the points this time. But Patrick Mahomes, once again, showing why. He is the best quarterback in the NFL. The Chiefs just look unstoppable with him. He's brilliant with his arm. He can make all the throws. Throws another 23-35, three touchdowns, over 300 yards passing, all that good stuff. But the play of this game was that 27-yard touchdown run in the second quarter. And this is with the Chiefs driving down 17-14. They get the ball back, which is over two minutes to go. Leads them right down the field. Makes a bunch of guys miss. Tiptoes the sideline into the end zone. They go up 21-17. They would never relinquish the lead. And from that point on, you knew that that game was over. That run will go down in Kansas City Chiefs lore as one of the biggest moments in the history of that franchise. And they have the best quarterback in the league. And Matt Verran reminded us last week on the podcast, Patrick Mahomes is the best player in football. No question about it. The things he can do are just special. I love watching him play because he will do things that I have not seen at that position ever. And he's brilliant. He can throw it all. He, that team is never out with him in the game. He is the best player in the league, and they are a lot of fun to watch. And I feel for the Titans fans because you were on the magic carpet ride. It felt a lot like the carpet rides the Jets took me on back in 2009 and 2010 when they rode the defense and the running games, the conference title games. But 
My issue with the Titans is this. Why did they abandon the run so early? In the first half, they were imposing their will. They were controlling the clock. They were controlling the tempo. Derrick Henry, the first half, 16 carries for 62 yards and a touchdown. They got three more carries the rest of the game. Only three. And the game did not get away from them that fast. I thought that was a big mistake by Mike Vrabel. I feel like they could have kept running the football, kept it close, because the thing that Tennessee had to do to win this football game was control the clock. That means feeding the ball to Derrick Henry for 30 carries. And it's just, you know, super-duper frustrating. And I feel the Titans. I think, to be honest, this was their shot at the Super Bowl, and they squandered it because next year, you don't know where you're going to get your quarterback because Ryan Tannehill had a magic carpet kind of year, and he did not have to do much in the first round of the playoffs because that defense carried them. Derrick Henry carried them, had a historic performance in the playoffs. Where are the odds of you getting that again out of both those guys? Other worldly performances out of Derrick Henry and magic carpet right stuff out of Ryan Tannehill. Probably not happening again. And Tennessee's not in a position where they can pick a quarterback this year. They're down at the bottom of the first round. So your options are limited. You have to either overpay Ryan Tannehill for a couple of years, hope he can duplicate it, hope somebody else shakes free and wants to sign with your team. And you need more weapons because A.J. Brown came up small in the conference title game. Ferkser at tight end is nice, but he's not a big-time guy. And, I mean, look at it this way. The Raven, I mean, the Titans, excuse me. They had this set up for them. They had the running game. They had the D. They had the game plan. They got away from it. It cost them, and I don't think they're getting back there anytime soon. I would not be shocked if Tennessee is a below 500 team next year. Now, let's go to the other game. The Chiefs looked unstoppable. So did the 49ers, who walloped Green Bay once again, get back to the Super Bowl for the first time since a guy named Colin Kaepernick was the quarterback there in 2012. And I will say one thing as well. Jimmy Garoppolo, my friend, you are getting a hell of a free rise at the Super Bowl. In the NFC title game, this was Jimmy Garoppolo's line. He completed six of eight passes for 77 yards. Think about that for a moment. In the NFC title game, with a trip to the Super Bowl on the line, he only had to attempt eight passes, completing six of them, for 77 yards. That is living. And that is living very, very good. And he did not need to throw the ball with how well the 49ers ran it. Matt Verderam on the podcast last week said that the key for the Packers in this game was to stop the 49ers from running the football. They could not do that. And that cost them dearly. The 49ers in this game ran the ball 42 times for 285 yards Headlined by a 220-yard, four-touchdown performance from Raheem Mostert on the ground. And 29 carries in the game, and what a fantastic performance out of him. The Packers, as I said last week, I had I ref, I ref a fan side on the side. I also, one of the things I had to do last week was I went back to the tape of the Week 12 matchup between the Packers and the 49ers, and I was asked to look for what Green Bay had to fix in order to beat the 49ers. And a lot of the same issues that they had in Week 12 came back to bite them here. The offensive line was poor in Week 12. Even with Brian Bulaga back, they were poor again. Aaron Rodgers was running for his life so much in this game. The secondary receivers could not get open in this game. Alan Lazard was okay. 
the rest of them, aside from Devontae Adams, did nothing. And, I mean, you can look at the at the stat sheet and say Rodgers had a good day, but that game was 34-7. A lot of those stats were garbage time stats. The 49ers playing a shell defense just to control the clock and make the Packers chew it up in their attempt to come back. Green Bay has some issues, and as a result, we ended up with two basic blowouts in conference championship Sunday, which was not fun. It was not fun to see. And hopefully this makes up for it with what should be a very, very exciting Super Bowl. We'll talk about it more later with Kevin Walsh Jr. We talked about the spreads, but this game opened up with the Chiefs a one-and-a-half-point favorite. It tells you that the oddsmakers expect this game to be very, very close, and I would agree with that. Let's talk about the fact the overrun of this game right now, opening at 52 points, which means we're talking about a close shootout in the Super Bowl. That'd be a lot of fun. It'd be a lot different than the 13-3 slobber knocker we got last year in the uh, Super Bowl between the Patriots and the Rams, and Bill Belichick put on a clinic against the Sean McVay-led offense of the Rams. I think this year, the key to everything this game is going to be fun. I think it's exciting. I'm glad we don't have New England back in it for the umpteenth time in a row. We had four times in five years we had Patriots Super Bowls. Now it's going to be fun for the rest of the league to sit back, relax, enjoy the game without rooting against the evil empire. We will talk more Super Bowl next week, but up next, we'll chat about the Hall of Fame induction ceremony, Hall of induction class with Rick Cerrone, the editor of Baseball Digest, but first, we will take a look at one of the highlights of the most prominent member of this class, Derek Jeter, courtesy of Yes Network's Michael K. The 3 2. That one's drilled deep to left field. Going back, Joyce. Looking up. See ya. 3,000. History with an exclamation point. All right, we are back here on the Just and the Suffering podcast. We just heard Michael Kay's historic call of Derek Jeter's 3,000 hits at Yankee. And I talked to me about this Hall of Fame class and some other stuff that's going on in the baseball world. Is the editor of Baseball Digest. I'm very happy to have on the line today, once again, Rick Cerrone. Rick, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Good morning, Mike. How are you today? Doing very good. It's always nice to have some new Hall of Famers in the baseball world. Well, it really is every day you're kind of renewed, and boy, did baseball need it this year, and did baseball need it to be someone like Derek Jeter. Yeah, Derek Jeter gets in. He gets all but one vote as somebody who is keeping an eye on these things. Should it bother people that he didn't get all all 397 votes? No, it shouldn't, uh, and I'm not someone that's keeping an eye on these things because I don't concern myself with anything other than the the person gets seventy five percent of the vote. Uh, I walked into my cigar club last night, and as I walked through the door, the first words out of somebody's mouth was, "One vote, Rick. One vote." I'm like, you know, that's not the story here. You know, I don't know why that writer did it. Um, whether he wanted to be the story, uh, although to my knowledge, he or she is still anonymous. Whether that writer filed a protest ballot for some perceived. Uh, something he did, he or she didn't like, or decided, like many of them do, uh, I've got 10 guys and many of them are on their last year or going to be under the 5% and fall off the ballot. So I'll let other people take care of Derek Jeter. I'm going to take care of, you know, Bobby Abreu or somebody. 
which I don't agree with. But it shouldn't matter to anybody. I mean, I've read some tweets on social media this morning that you know, what has happened to people calling people names, uh, you know, idiot being the some idiot. You know what? Let's all settle down. He got all but one vote. That's that's fine. Derek Jeter doesn't isn't concerning himself with. Um, bottom line is he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, um, and you know I I knew that from probably I was thinking about when did it occur to you that you're watching a Hall of Famer, and it's probably right after the, the turn of the century, 2000 2001, where I would say if this guy stays healthy, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, I was I agree with that because I mean Derek Jeter doesn't care if he got all all the votes he's happy he's in there and i mean like i didn't hear hank aaron complaining or willie mays complaining i mean then Derek jeter isn't but um we're so fixated on this because of social media uh because of people being able to you know put their opinions out there on a somewhat national level um without any thought without any concern about how their words are taken uh people are really getting mean on social media. Uh, and that's not what this is supposed to be about. Um, there was a vote of however many people, almost 400 people, you know, you're supposed to get 75%. That's the story. He's a hall of famer. Let's move on. I agree. Let's move on. Let's talk more about Derek Jeter's career. And obviously your, your time with the Yankees, you can't, you were there right when he was coming up. So as far as Jeter is concerned, and my, 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 my first question basically is like, what do you have any fun stories from early in his career that that you want to discuss? Well, you know, I met him in probably the first day of spring training in 1996, where he had had some experience the previous season. Uh, came up in May of '95. Um, I, I think the fun story is that um, Jeter Derek said in his press conference or in his conference call that uh, you know. Uh, he kind of fell into the job when Tony Fernandez got hurt. Well, my recollection is that Fernandez was going to play second base uh, in spring training when he broke his arm. And it was just horrible. I remember holding his other hand and on the training table uh, and he was in, in such pain. And, um, you know, Jeter, in my opinion, was, was planned to be the shortstop for the 96 Yankees. And what I remember is, I remember Joe Torre coming back from like an organizational spring training meeting up in the conference room in brand new Legends Field. And he came into his office where I was sitting there waiting for him. I knew it would be a three-hour meeting or something. So now I'm waiting in his office. And he came down and he kind of, you know, with a pained look on his face, dropped his binder onto his desk and like shaking his head. And I said, what's up? Because would you believe what so-and-so just said up in this meeting? Now, this is one of Steinbrenner's inner circle. Uh, of, you know, former GMs, scouts, pitching coaches. He had a whole, you know, cabinet of people that would be in spring training. And he said, you know, he just said, we can't win with this kid Jeter at short. We got to go out and get a shortstop. And then for a while, there was that talk of that they were trying to get Felix Fermin, who was one of my guys in Pittsburgh, and I think now was with the Mariners, to play shortstop. And the name being bandied about was Mariano Rivera. So, thankfully, Jeter was the opening day shortstop. We did not trade Mariano Rivera, and the rest, as they say, is history. I can't imagine how different history would have been if they had made that trade, trade Rivera away, and basically buried Jeter in the minor leagues for another year. Well, you know, 
I'll tell you another funny story. What to me is a funny story. So, um, I have a strong recollection that I want to say it was ESPN came to us in 96 and 97 to film TV spots, promoting the game on ESPN. I think it was ESPN and they used Paul O'Neill. They used Tino Martinez. My first year, I know they used Tino Martinez and they had him in a psychiatrist couch, which they filmed and they made a little room into a, psychiatrist office they took my family picture off my desk and said we'll put this on the shelf they decorated the set and and martinez was supposed to be talking to this doctor about replacing mattingly okay they had another one where paul o'neill was in a room full of gift boxes that he were designed to be given to opposing pitchers okay i remember this distinctly i also remember one of Derek jeter being at his locker or something this is 97 where a reporter is asking him about his rookie season and winning the rookie of the year. And Jeter's response is, well, I'm going to work really hard because I want to win that award again. And the reporter tells him, you can only win the award once. And Jeter gives a befuddled look. Cut back to a new shot of the locker where over his name is the name Jeterberg. And he's got like like a, a wig on. You know, that to disguise his, uh, you know, to disguise his looks. I always called him Mr. Jeterberg. <laughs> I would go up to his locker and say, Mr. Jeterberg, can I have a minute? So when they were doing stuff around his retirement, I mentioned this to somebody. Oh, I've got to find that. i got to find that. A number of people tried. I called ESPN. Nobody, there is no record of that. It's not like you can go to YouTube and find it, which you can for everything. So now I'm convinced that this thing is like the Holy Grail. It doesn't exist. So I see Jeter. I see Derek at a, when, they, when they retired Joe Torrey's number. And I said, Derek, I have to ask you a question. And he said, I said, do you remember that I would call you Mr. Jeterberg? He goes, yeah. And I said, you know why I did that, right? He goes, no. I'm like, what? He says, I just thought it was you trying to be, you, know, you being you. And I said, no. And I told him about the commercial. And he goes, nah, don't remember it. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I must have hallucinated this. And then he says to me, you know, now you're mentioning this, it does kind of sound familiar. But anyway, I swear to God, Mike, we filmed this commercial, Jeterberg over his locker. He's wearing a wig. And I don't know whatever happened to it. Yeah, it's, it's something I want to try and find. I'm going to make my mission today to go find it on the internet and see if I can find that commercial. I don't think you're going to find it, but I, I'm telling you, it does exist somewhere. Maybe someone has it. But I talked to ESPN, I talked to Fox, but you know, getting back to Jeter, that I had the absolute honor to be around as the Yankees' director of media relations for his first 11 years in the big leagues. I mean, I was there for his. You know, his first major league home run, my first game as PR director of the Yankees, opening day in Cleveland. He hits the the ball out to left center field with Phil Rizzuto making the call on on television, which was an unbelievable moment. Um, I always tell people, Mike, that they say, well, tell me about Derek Jeter. And I said, well, he had no use for me. What? You didn't get along? I said, no, we got along fine. But he was not the kind of guy that really needed my help. There was other players that would come to you all the time 
with questions or how do I, you know, if you're doing something, you're going to be the Sunday conversation and they're going to tape it at 3 p.m. in the, the visiting locker room in uh, the football locker room in the Metrodome, um, for example. Well, that player might need you to hold his hand, tell him the day before, you know. Derek didn't need any of that. He didn't need memos left at his locker, which I traditionally did. You know, you boom, put every reminder, you three o'clock, you have this, you know, he, he didn't need that. Uh, he was his professional from day one. I never felt like he was a rookie. Uh, he conducted himself, and I think it goes back to his, his, his wonderful parents, uh, you know, Charles and, and Dorothy Jeter, uh, the way he and his sister were raised. Yeah, one thing I wanted to ask you about, I don't know if, if you were there when the decision was made, but when he comes up, they give him number two. Because at the time, they only had two single-digit numbers left that right. had been retired yet. Six goes to Joe Torre, two goes to Derek Jeter. Right. To me, that seemed like that seemed like a huge deal. That they must have thought that this that, uh, Jeter could be special. Yeah, you know, there is a story behind that. While while why Nick Priori, uh, who was the clubhouse manager at the time, uh, gave him number two. Um, he was special. He was much hyped. But I'll tell you a funny story. Very early on in my my tenure with the Yankees, so it's 96, 96, probably, probably after 96 for this to have happened. Um, somebody got into the press box where my office was, you know, just some fan that went to the game and they had a bag with a photo. And you know how you buy a framed photo, like a licensed photo, of, you know, that's just, you're just paying a lot of money for a photo behind, you know, on a plaque or something. Well, the photo was of Derek Jeter, right? An action, like... And he was not wearing number two. He was, but it, and it clearly was a major league game. It wasn't like he was with, the, you know, the Tampa Yankees or whatever. Uh, and he was wearing another number. And I, what I said to the person, I said, "Look, put this thing away, take it home. If you want to display it, display it. If not, it, you know. But this is going to be worth money someday because it's such an aberration. Jeter in another number. I don't remember what the story was, but." In this picture, at least, he's not wearing number two. But, you know, he was number two. Joe Torre was number six. And there went the single-digit numbers for the Yankees. Yeah, the way you described kind of reminds me of the times like when Michael George wearing number 45 for the Bulls. just looks so out of place. Well, here's another funny thing about it that I thought of even when when Jeter started wearing two. Number two was a an iconic number for an entire generation of young baseball fans. Every kid wanted to wear number two in the Little League or whatever the league they might have been in. When I was a kid, right, number two on the Yankees, and I was a big Yankee fan as a kid, was worn by the third base coach, their former player, Frankie Crosetti, who who wore the number since the 40s. You know, that was his number as a player after he he lost number one because he held out one spring to get back at him. When he finally showed up, they said, hey, by the way, you don't have number one anymore. You're, we gave it away. So from like 1945-ish or so till he left the Yankees after the 68 season, he was number two. This older gentleman, Frankie Crosetti, coaching third. Well, nobody wanted you know, you probably walk around and say, number two, I'll take number two for Frankie Crosetti. So where number two in my generation was a number you didn't want, now number two is an iconic, revered number that, kids to, to this day probably still want. 
Yeah, it's going to be one that lives in Yankee hearts forever. Let's go on to the other member of this Hall of Fame class, which is Larry Walker. He barely gets right. in. He gets six He gets six votes over the limit, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of controversy with him about of course Field aid his offensive stats. Do you think that should be something yep. that was held against him in the voting process? I don't know. Did Shy Park, Baker Bowl, you know, help Jimmy Fox and Al Simmons? You know, I, I don't. You, you play in the ballpark you play in, right? And you can't say to somebody, uh, you know, you, you can't say to somebody, uh, hey, we, we want to acquire you, but, but but buyer beware, you'll never get in the Hall of Fame because the numbers you put up here, uh, you know, will you know are, are not going to be uh, credible with with Hall of Fame voters. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, Larry Walker hit, you know, 300 with the Montreal Expos. Uh, you know, if, if he was aided by the ballpark, I mean, Larry Larry Walker had 44 doubles in 1994, you know, in shortened season. Uh, you know, I mean, he wasn't playing in Coors Field. So uh, I, I just, I think that's all bunk. I really do. Uh, you know, your numbers are your numbers. Nobody plays in the same park. You know, people play at Fenway Park. People play Yankee. People are aided by Yankee Stadium. Are, are we going to start uh, judging left-handed hitters at, at, and their numbers at Yankee Stadium when we're looking at them for the Hall of Fame? No. Uh, so for for Coors Field to stand out and players be you know uh, uh, you know hurt by that, I, I don't I don't get it. Larry Walker's in. Todd Helton may get in as early as next year. I think he will eventually get in. Um, you know, that it took him till his 10th year on the ballot. You know, it took Ralph Kiner till his 15th year on the ballot. Same with, you know, Burt Blyleffen. Uh, people look at careers differently over time. I've looked at people's careers differently over time. I mean, you take Jim Rice, for example. You know, Jim Rice's numbers to some people were not Hall of Fame until you realize he did it in a pre-steroid era, and they're pretty spectacular. They hold up pretty well. So upon uh, putting it in perspective, yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. But Larry Walker's in. Congratulations. God bless you. Uh, enjoy it. it. It's an unbelievable moment. It must be tough for nine years thinking you have a chance uh, and not getting in. So I'm so happy that he's in. Yeah, it's going to be nice to see him get in. You mentioned next year's ballot. I looked ahead. There's no <laughs> there's no slam dunk candidate on it. There's no. no Jeter. There's no Rivera coming up for election next year. So how many people do you think will actually get in next year? Well, I think Kirk Schilling will get in next year unless he says something, you know, that he'll regret. Although I don't know if he regrets what he says. But I think if, if Kirk Schilling has a year of peace uh, on social media and whatever, um, I, I think you know, with 70% of the vote, he's getting in. I, I think the steroids era players, um, you know, let's say headed by Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, they've got two good breaks coming in that one next year. You have no, you have no one on the ballot for the first time that's getting in. You know, there's no Derek Jeter on the bar- ballot. There's no Mariano Rivera. I don't think there's anybody that will be on the ballot for the first time next year that will get in. That will that will make it a little easier for Schilling, Bonds, and Clemens. Um, the next year is Bonds and Clemens' last year on the ballot, and I think, like Larry Walker, they tend to go up. But you just don't know because there might be people that are not changing their vote 
you know, based on it's their last year. And there might be people who say, listen, I, I gave you a 10 year, 10 years in purgatory and now I'm going to put you in. So I think those, those three people jump out at, at me as who can most benefit by this. Yeah, that makes some sense. I just can see what happens in the next two years. Before I let you go, I do want to touch on a couple of the, a little bit of the sign stealing scandal. So, as somebody who's been around baseball for much your entire life, like, what's your big takeaway of this electronic sign stealing thing? Well, when this started to break months ago, I was on a New York radio station and was asked about this, and basically said, "I can't see how there's anything here because it's it. What I'm reading is just so utterly ridiculous." And I said, look, this is what you're saying. You're going to get all the hitters together, and I'm sure your pitchers will know about this. And you're telling them that we've got a camera in center field, and we've got a way to transmit to you by banging on a garbage pail when a certain pitch is coming. And the catcher will be the only one that can hear this. Like, I mean, the, the batter. The catcher's not going to hear it and say, wait, what's up here? Uh, you're never going to trade a player, release a player. You're never going to have a disgruntled player that's going to leave your organization and you know, spill the beans. I said, this thing is so ludicrous, it can't be true. Well, it was. And almost to the very degree that I poo-pooed, it, it was true. Uh, this is really bad for baseball. This is really, really bad. Uh, when you and, and I think the commissioner did the absolute right thing uh, with, with the penalties both the monetary penalty to the club, the loss of draft picks. Uh, it, it was basically once I knew that this thing was legit, I, you know, I, it was pretty much what I thought the penalties were, were going to be. Penalties still to come for uh, Alex Cora. I don't believe it'll be any less than the year uh, that Hinch got. Um, and and Lunel, uh, a manager w- w- with great respect as a player, and Carlos Beltran, you know, doesn't even make it to opening day. Uh, it's really bad, but I think the commissioner did his best to stop the bleeding. And now I believe more has to be done. There needs to be more deterrence. Whether you lay out that these will be the penalties and the penalties are stiffer for anything like this, but I think you got to make it harder to pull stuff like this off. Uh, there's just too much access during the game to video, in my opinion. Um, and I think that that's, that's got to listen, I am a, and I, I wrote this last year, Mike, based on just pace of play. I'm just tired of every play. The manager holds up his hand and I'll let you know when we can continue because we got to look at that nothing play to see if the guy, you know, actually did not beat the throw to first base. Okay. The guy watching it on replay, uh, says we can play on, we're not challenging. Uh, you know, you, I'm just tired of that. Uh, I think that they do it with, without, with impunity. Uh, they can do it on every play. Um, and I, I think that's got to stop because you can't be calling someone watching the game on video. You can't. Now because you can. who knows what else he's telling that guy in the dugout. Hey, uh, he's safe. Don't don't challenge the call. But hey, check out the picture. Every time he does this, can't happen. Got to stop. 
Yeah, I think we're going to eventually see a point where we ban technology in the dugout during games. I could even see them possibly just taking the replay out of the manager's hands and putting it sort of like an umpire upstairs or in Chelsea no, just doing that. I don't think you'll take it. Uh, listen, for 100 years, the manager went out and kicked dirt and threw second base and whatever on what he thought he saw with his naked eye. You know, I, I just I, I just think it's hard to believe that they would ever remove, once technology gets in, that it would ever be removed. But I really believe that once the game starts, you got to shut it down. You got to shut it down in the clubhouses, you know, from the dugout. You just got to shut it down. Sorry. All right, that's that's an interesting take. And my last question is obviously you brought Carlos Beltran. Did you feel like mm-hmm. he was a player for times? So obviously, he was not as involved as like management was in terms of directing everything. Do you think he should have been let go by the Mets? I don't know what his involvement was as a player. You know, and I'm not making accusations, but we don't know. He could have been, he could have drawn it up for all we know. But I think that he was involved to a degree where he was mentioned in the report, the only player that was. Um, he was not penalized by baseball. Obviously, and, and look, Mike, the Mets did not want to dismiss Carlos Beltran. I mean, my goodness, this is the guy they wanted. They loved them, so they obviously felt we, we've got to cut the ties here. So, you know, the Mets don't always make the right decision. I I, 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 I can't tell you that letting Carlos Beltran go was the wrong decision. I can't say that. Yeah, I got the sense. I agree with you. I thought they wanted to do it, but the turning point, I think, was when they went to the commissioner's office, uh, Jeff Wolpott and Brody Van Wagen. Apparently, they were told that Carlos is more involved than they thought. I think that's sort of when the tie turned for him. Yeah, I, I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. Uh, you know, I mean, I think they wanted any reason possible not to have to do this. It just, it just wasn't there. I mean, and they, and the other thing is, you start thinking, well, what, what's going to get out, you know, and when, did, and who knew what when? Because if it gets out there, let's say they find out that he had a larger role than was laid out. If if that gets out in July, and they're now they're asking questions about. Wait a second. Now you find out that he did this. And you, I think they just wanted a fresh start. Yeah. But see, I think, I think it. And look, we could, I could be proven wrong. I think that the teams that are looking for new managers, and right now today, there's three of them. I think to put this behind the organization, you got to have someone with great credibility. And I don't think there's, I don't think there's a first year manager out there that's got great credit or any credibility as a manager. I mean, you hire Buck Showalter, you hire Dusty Baker, you hire Bruce Bochy, you hire Mike Sosha, you hire John Gibbons. You've put this behind you. You know, they might just be a placeholder or a caretaker, but I, I, I just don't think that, uh, you know, you got to be really good to be a first-year manager and step into this beehive. I agree with that. Rick, thanks for all the time taking, to take, talking to me today. I know you got to run because you're getting to the Hall of Fame press conference this afternoon. Before I let you go, do you want to let everybody know all the great stuff you're doing for Baseball Digest and how people can get copies of it? Well, thank you, Mike, for that compliment. Uh, you know, Baseball Digest, which is better than ever uh, in its 79th year, uh, on the newsstands now at all Barnes & Nobles and major newsstands. Uh, Pete Alonzo on the cover. Uh, and very happy to be, I'm told. Um, and you can subscribe by going to BaseballDigest.com. Uh, our preview issue, uh, which will address this uh, signed 
scandal, uh, will be on newsstands March 5th. So uh, look for that and go to Barnes & Noble. All right, I'll be sure to pick up a copy. Rick, thanks again for the time. I really appreciate it. Okay, Mike, thanks. All right, and there you have it. That was Rick Cerrone. Talk about the Baseball Hall of Fame class. A little bit about the sign-stealing stuff as well. Some interesting stuff for sure. Up next, show me the money. Super Bowl Gambling Edition with Kevin Walsh Jr. right after this. Show me the money. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. Show me the money, time to give you a Super Bowl betting guide. And no one better to bring on today to talk about that is the guy who talked about sports betting for a living over at Sports Grid. He did the picks in week 15 of the NFL season. Kevin Walsh Jr. is back with us. Kevin, welcome. How are you? Uh, excited to be here, Mike. Uh, I'm doing well, man. Uh, no complaints on this, Ken. We're in the thick of the NBA season. College hoops starting to ramp up. And, of course, uh, as you alluded to there, Super Bowl right around the corner. Super Bowl is right around the corner. I cannot wait for the start this. And, I mean, before we get to Super Bowl, tell the fact your Eagles made the playoffs. They ended up losing so in the first mm. round. As an Eagles fan, what's your overall take on their year? You know, it, it, it's a tough one to evaluate. They, they were a team that had high expectations coming into the season. I don't think Super Bowl or bust is a, a fair way to label it, but certainly they, you know, they felt like a team, um, they believed they could win the Super Bowl. And I think there's a lot of people who thought they could win the Super Bowl. You end up looking at it, right? A nine and seven record. They win the division. It's, it's tough though, because the rest of the division, every single one of them fired their head coach. You better win the division if that's how the rest of your division looks. But, of course, the narrative for this team all season long up until the very end, the injuries and the run that went, went on to get them into the playoffs, it was going to be an uphill battle because they still didn't have a full supporting cast going into that Seahawks game. But he instilled confidence in that team and the fan base. And uh, we all saw what happened, obviously, the, the hit from Jadavion Clowney. Uh, and look, the one thing I'll say about it, though, Mike, is I, I think there's a lot of people who, um, that, you know, they're down on Wentz. They, they feel like the guy's soft, not trustworthy. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I think it's, I think it's a bit of a clown take. Carson Wentz, uh, when you talk about injury prone, it's more guys that have these reoccurring injuries to the same exact spot, um, hamstring injuries, right? Or, or even if it's, you know, chronic shoulder pain, whatever, something like that. Wentz has more of these freak accidents. And I, and I don't want to hear that a dude that takes a helmet from Jadavion Clowney to the back of his head is soft for not continuing. I, I think that's crazy. And I just think another example of it was, you know, when he tore his ACL against the Rams, he stayed in and still threw a touchdown. Like, that's a, that, that's one tough son of a gun. And, and, and as an Eagles fan, I'm just really hoping that next year they're back in the playoffs and we finally get to see him perform for a full game in the postseason. Yeah, that would be nice to see. I feel bad for him because he's missed out on all of the run, and he missed not getting a chance to guide his team into conference championship weekend, which is what we just saw. And I was not too happy with the game because we got a couple of blouts. Do you have any big takeaways from the weekend? Man, I, you know, I think the biggest thing that, that I take away, and, and it carries over a bit to the Super Bowl, right? It's the Kansas City Chiefs uh, and them flirting with the danger zone, obviously, what they did against the Texans was wild. They're down 24 nothing, but they came back and they were 
you know, they, of course, they're at home. Their offense is so explosive. The Texans have their way to find themselves in a position like that. And ultimately, their defense was not good. They were very fortunate to get off the field in the beginning of that game, and it caught up to them. The, the Chiefs scoring 51 points. But again, against the Titans, the fact that they were down 10 nothing, and they were, again, able to come back and win the football game. And, you know, of course, for those betting on it, probably even more important, they covered the football game. And it's tough to tell how much do you want to rely on that because this is a Niners team that is comfortably better than both the Texans and the Titans. You do not want to be spotting them a double-digit lead. No, you don't. And let's get into the betting, which is why you're here. We're not making the pick today, but we'll talk about all the different ways you can bet on this game. Mm-hmm. Starting with the fact that this game opened, the line for this game starts off as Chiefs was one-and-a-half-point favorites. How do you feel about that mm-hmm. line? Where do you think it's going to end up? You know what? I don't know how much it's really going to move from this one-and-a-half. I think that um, a lot of the, you know, the public perception, I think they're more inclined to back. Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, they are more of the darling. Um, but the closer this thing gets to three, uh, what you would kind of label, you know, your, your sharper betters, if you will, they're really ready to, uh, to slam the Niners if, if, you know, they dare for it with that number. Cause even a two and a half, right? If this thing gets up to two and a half, the sharper better will buy that extra half point and they'll have it at a field goal event and they'll go really, really hard on it. So, I don't think the one and a half is going to move too much. Um, and I also think it's it's pretty reasonable, all things considered. As much as the Niners uh, have been dominant throughout this year, this Chiefs team is as hot as I think any team we've seen roll into the Super Bowl. Yeah, I feel like that line is pretty close to a pick So basically, I think mm-hmm. it's not really going to matter this much. It's really, whoever you think is going to win, I think that's the way you're going to go with it. Yeah, I don't think there are many people who are playing Niners catching one and a half points and, and won't be interested um, at them on the money line. It, it, look, could the Chiefs only win by one? Of course, but, you know, it's very, very difficult to be banking on that. Yeah, let's go to the money line next as you brought that up because that's something I usually dive into in this in this part of the podcast. Mm. But, I mean, the numbers are very interesting. That's why, I mean, last I saw, I would think it was Chiefs minus 110, Niners minus 105. So pretty mm. good, pretty good odds there on both teams. Yeah, if those are the money lines that, that, that you're seeing, then then completely, um, you know, ditch the spread. Like if I if I base it off of you know, like FanDuel here, uh, the, the sports book, um, if you're gonna go to their website, the app, whatever it is, uh, the Chiefs are minus one twenty eight, and the Niners are are uh, plus one twelve. So uh, you know, a bit more value there if you're back in the Niners. But also, again, it, if you're the Chiefs, as much as I'm saying, you know, it would be surprising to see this game be decided by a one-point Chiefs win and you back the Chiefs and don't cover the number, but you go from minus 115 laying a point and a half to only minus 130 and you ditch that point and a half, the money line is probably going to be more attractive for both sides, whether you're back in the Chiefs or the Niners in this game. Yeah, I think it's going to be very attractive. I think the other one that I love in this game, I I love the over-under of 52. I feel like this, the over is the way to play this. Well, I'll tell you what, though, uh, Mike, the, the overs continually move. So uh, you said 52 there, I believe. And if that's the number you've got, you're getting some serious value. Uh, again, you know, I just I, I like to use Fandle. Uh It's up to 54 now, uh, and it's continually getting closer. You, you combine the fact that these are two really, really good offenses, and, you know, typically people like to play overs. 
more than under. So uh, 52 is really nice. And, you, you know, I don't know if you're someone who likes to try and, you know, middle a game. It's not a huge uh, spread. But say this thing gets up to 55, a three-point middle uh, could be worth a shot. Yeah, it definitely could be worth a shot. And let's talk about some other ways to bet this game. I mean, mm. I, I'm a guy, I love the box pools. So how many of the box pools are you in this year? <laughs> um, I, I have not found myself in any just yet. But, uh, you know, words start circulating right around the work office. Bodies uh, are hitting you up. Last year, I, I was probably in around five or so. Uh, and, and look, they're, they're enjoyable. Um, but as I started to find myself diving a bit more into the numbers the way I have over the last year, it, it's a thing where, you know, it is a complete crapshoot as to whether you're going to be hitting these boxes. They're fun and they're a good way to play. Like if you're, you know, of course you're doing it with a bunch of people, a hundred boxes, you know, at, at the minimum, you probably at least got 20 people, uh, probably in, in your boxes. So they're a good time. And, you know, it's an easy sell for people that are like, ah, I don't know who's going to win this game. Like, I just buy a box. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a great way to get the casuals involved. I mean, like, mm-hmm. right, it's basically the uh, same as throwing it at a dartboard and hoping you hit. Yeah, and, and look, too, in a way, right, everybody, uh, I want 7-3 or I want 3-0. As much as, of course, that is, you know, it's easy to figure out. Man, NFL scores are all over the place now. Like, I can sell you on any number coming home so uh, as much as again you'd, you'd love to see seven three it's not always going to go that way especially in this day and age we have the kickers who are not reliable and missing extra points yes a hundred percent and the two-point conversion uh, you know i think these are going to be two teams with kyle shanahan and andy reed at the helms of the offenses that if they're in a situation where going for two makes sense they'll do it and whether they get it or not it's going to completely throw the number off anyway yeah Let's get to the other fun thing I want to talk about this week, which is the prop bets. You get tons of prop bets mm-hmm. at the Super Bowl. So what are some of your favorite prop bets this year? You know, I'll tell you what it is really interesting to me, and it is the, the MVP prop right now, Mike. And, and I'm I'm curious um, how, how you would view this as well, but is it fair to say that there is no way the Kansas City Chiefs win this game and Pat Mahomes is not? your MVP of the Super Bowl. Again, basing it off Vandal, he's plus 110 to win Super Bowl MVP. They're minus 128 to win the football game here. And I, if we go off of what we've seen in this postseason, right, Travis Kelsey, that game against the Texans, plays as good a game as a skill position player could play. 10 catches, 134 yards, three touchdowns. That's a monster game. But Mahomes throws for 321 yards, 65.7 completion percentage, and five total touchdowns. It's not even close. It's going to be Mahomes. So I'm almost wondering if it is worth your time to completely ditch. If you really like the Chiefs in this game, just take plus 110 and Mahomes to win MVP. Yeah, I like that bet as well. Some of the fun ones I, I'm curious about just because I just think they're hilarious. It's like how, mm. many, how many players have a passing attempt over under of two and a half? It means you have to say you're betting on the trick play, which I would take the over on that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think back, like how many times we we've, we've seen necessarily um, these teams go to other guys throwing the football. But you know, the tough thing is, right? It's it's no holds barred when you get to the Super Bowl. You're not saving anything. Um, so yeah, of course, it's definitely worth a shot um, to the over. That's the thing about the Super Bowl, right? It's tough to find yourself playing unders. Yeah, it is. It is fun. I like. I also like the. Will the opening kickoff be a touchback? Because I feel like there's good value there in the in not taking the touchback. 
What are the odds on that one? Last I saw, I think it was like plus like it was like two something on not being a touchback. You know what? I like that as well, especially you have you know you have to really hope. But if the Chiefs get the ball first, that is huge because Michael Hardman will try and take it to the house. So that I think it's definitely worth a shot too. That's that's a nice plus price there. Yeah, I like that one. Some of the non-football ones I think are anything nothing nothing to do with the game on the field or. The times that Donald Trump tweets on February 2nd, which is over under 13 and a half. Oh, boy. What will happen to the price of Bitcoin during the Super Bowl? I think that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways to attack the Super Bowl, right? Yeah. Like, there's even, uh, and they're not all out yet, but I'm, I'll, you know, it'll be interesting to see when they drop it. There's also these, like, cross-sport parlays where I think, like, the Rockets are playing that day. So they'll, they'll, they'll find something, like, James Harden points or points through three quarters in the game. Like they'll find they'll find crazy stuff like that. Um, there's always ways to get people involved. Like that's the thing about the Super Bowl, man. There's so many different ways to bet football throughout the year, but every single thing you could imagine is on the table when the Super Bowl runs around. Yeah, my last two I wanted to hit on were the color of the Gatorade pour on the winning coach. I was always fun. Mm. Plus on everything. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's a big it's a dart if they have a dart throw it's a lot of fun if you hit it and my personal favorite of everything here is how many times will a rod be shown during the halftime show over under a half. <laughs> I mean they got to get some a rod love in there I, I think I think the color one too is what's funny about this stuff though right Mike is like there's so many people who would see that and they're like ah oh, man like you you never know this that and the third there are people out there who, like, really track this stuff. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, the Chiefs are, are they're a yellow team all the way or something like that. And also, like, look, no doubt about it, there are people out there who call and who know. Like, they know somebody who knows somebody who's, you know, making one extra phone call and it's like, yeah, we're rolling with the Raid Getter, uh, Raid Getter uh, today. Yeah, indeed. And I'm hammering the over on the A-Rod prop bet because this is also Fox's Super Bowl and A-Rod works for Fox. So you can bet they'll find a way to shove him in there. A Rod might take a snap, man. A- a- there, you can never rule it out with A Rod. Yeah, he- he's always on. He is always on. And let's have some fun. Let's like let's do an actual football pick. Let's see, another Pro Bowl was up there. Just for just mm. for fun, we'll get to that. I'll reset what happened last week on the picks challenge. Ian Sachs, your our, our friend, was here for the challengers. He went two and two on his picks. He won with the Chiefs laying seven and a half. He hit the Chief over. He had the Packers getting this plus seven and the under in that game, so he lost mm. on those two. Yeah, total of seven oh. points because he did the four two three four three two one system in, in the playoffs here. Mm. I actually went four. Yeah, so, I hit everything last week. Did you really? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you what, Mike. I remember the last time I was on, and you know, obviously you want to have a good week, but the thing that stood, you know stood out to me is if I remember correctly, it was like the Texans Titans game the first time that they were uh, meeting up since like Tannehill had really taking them back, and we found ourselves on opposite opposite sides and. I, I and you know and I'm not bragging, but the Texans got it right, and I was just happy. I'm like, yeah, that means that Mike has to invite me back. You know what I mean? I, I showed my work. Yeah, I put that on my note. I said, bring Kevin back for a gambling segment. As soon as I said that. <laughs> uh, I tell you what, though, man, if you're looking at this Pro Bowl, look, here's the thing, right? The Pro Bowls, it's it's tough because it's really hard to half-ass a football game. It's far too violent of a game to. Just go out there. If one dude's a hundred percent, and one dude's you know 
84%. It's like, it's going to, it's going to get ugly. And that's why these guys don't care enough. It's difficult. However, genuinely, I think there might be a real angle to this football game that is worth betting. Like, we're not talking about, oh, it's a pro ball. I'll throw a couple bucks on the NFC because I'm an Eagle fan. The over in this game, and I was looking at this the other day, Mike, it was at 49.5. As I look at it right now, it's 51.5. It's moving over. And I think it's because the NFL is giving a shot this onside kick uh, rule change. So instead of an onside kick, for anybody that doesn't know, what they're doing is, and obviously the team has to elect if they would like to try this. They, of course, can take it deep. But if the team wants to, they have 4th and 15 from their own 25. If they pick up the yard, their football, from wherever they pick up what would be the first down. If they don't get it, dead ball spot, it's the other team's ball. So think about this, right? Best case scenario is after team scores, they go for the 4th and 15. They don't get it, especially an incomplete pass. You're now starting a drive in the 25-yard line. This is like college overtime. You're guaranteed a field goal try, and it's probably going to go in. So that's going to be a lot of points. The worst-case scenario, these teams are going to be converting. Again, it's from the 25, 15 yards. You're starting your drive from your own 40-yard line here. It's the Pro Bowl. Why not be aggressive? Again, you're pretty close to the 50-yard line. So I'm expecting I'll see a lot of people go for it here. And I don't think this rule is just there and they're not going to use it. I'd like to believe, Mike, that the NFL is going to be telling them, give this a try, please. We want to see if this is a genuinely viable option for us as opposed to the onside kick, which just feels like a complete waste of time. And I really think that we could find ourselves in a game where both teams are in the 40s. Yeah, it will be fun. We'll make the pick in a minute here. It's just a reset on the picks challenge on this playoffs. I think the challengers have seven, have 18 points. I have 25, so there's still grounds he made up. So we will actually pick the Pro Bowl this week. So I'm going to throw the music in there because I have to get the music in every week. So we will go to, <laughs> we will go to the Pro Bowl. We will go to the AFC versus the NFC. The NFC, I believe, is a one-and-a-half-point favorite. Are you going with the yeah. NFC? I have but no choice to go for the NFC. Uh, simply because I am an Eagles fan. And, and realistically, I have nothing else for you. I know a couple of Eagles players will be playing in the game. And that's the, in terms of the side, man, I don't even, and, and bless the lines makers who, who have this job, I don't know how they decide which one of these teams to favor. I, I almost wonder if they just took it from the Super Bowl, right? Like the AFC Chiefs are favored by one and a half. Maybe that's why, like, the NFC is catching, you know, point and a half here. It's the same thing. Like, genuinely, maybe that's it. I don't know, but give me the one and a half points. Uh, just to be different, I'll take the AFC with the one with the right. one and a half points. I'll say this. Lamar Jackson. This Pro Bowl was made for Lamar Jackson just go running in circles mm. around the entire world. So, I do think, though, the best bet here is the over, as you said. Yeah. I, I, I would love to see, like, some more props open up as this game gets closer to Things like that is definitely, uh, it's, it's worth the attention. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonder, like, are the Rockets playing on Sunday? Maybe you get a Rockets, like, James Harden points against the, against the NFC <laughs> Pro Bowl. <laughs> yeah, 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 that'd be good. That would be good. Um, yeah, I don't know how wild they're going to be willing to get with the Pro Bowl, man. But, again, I genuinely think that I will be playing the over. Um, I just, I, th- I really think it, it, it's worth the opportunity. I'm sure there's going to be people like, oh, let me wait and see. Let's see how aggressive they are with the onside pick stuff. 
In order for you to find that out, you're probably going to need to see two scores, like one from each team, to see them do it. At that point, the total could be in the 60s. Your, your value could be completely done. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, the problem, they do all kinds of wacky things. Like, they'll have, like, like running backs throwing passes to running backs. They'll have safety yeah. running backs. So, like, this is just one where they're going to let every, like, basically throw all the balls to the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, they, they need to find a way to make this game more attractive, if you will. Um, it's it just got to keep people's attention. And, you know, 45 40, it, people will watch. Like, if it, you know, like, how about this? 45 to 44, the AFC wins, and the game goes over, and the NFC covers by the point and a half. That's what we're rooting for now. Yeah, so we'll root for that. That's what that put those picks on the board. We'll get that in there. Just get the music in for the week. So that's that's our Pro Bowl picks for the week. <laughs> next week, I'm bringing back my friend Nick Frietta to talk about the Super Bowl pick next week. And there's going to be a lot of picks coming here next week because I'm putting together an article. You're going to be part of this where we have all 18 people who did picks during the regular season submitting their Super Bowl predictions. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, it's. Uh... You know, it, it feels like pressure whenever, whenever this, you know, it gets published because you, you want to be right, like when you're in a big pool like that against people. But there's only so many options you can really go with here. Um, I'll, I'll say there's no no spoiler. Things can change, but I uh, I I really think I'm going to end up back in uh, Andy Reid and Co. Uh, when when it comes down to it, I'm going to make things interesting too. I'm going to put this out in the air for everybody who's in this. Whoever has the closest prediction in terms of like score and storyline, I'll I will Venmo twenty dollars to. Ooh, well, you know what's funny, Mike? Like, I'm not someone who finds myself like big on exact scores. I mean, look, I'll, I'll say it right now: it'll be in the article, and and people will have to go to it to to see everybody else's. But it, it's one of those things when it comes to you, you have to just go with it. And it came to me, and I believe Kansas City Chiefs thirty-eight, San Francisco Forty ers 30, 38 to 30, the Chiefs win the Super Bowl. Um, it's just what I feel. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. I've not put my thoughts to paper yet. I'm going to be in the article too. Obviously, if I win, I'm not taking the $20. I'm going to give it to whoever's the closest. <laughs> you got to make the rest of the, if you win, the rest of the guests have to send you a dollar a piece, I'd say. <laughs> well, that feels only fair. Yeah, well, we, now, even then, I would, I would still be down $2 because I'm going to be getting 18 well, yeah, but you, you, but you don't then send out your 20. This is true. It's basically like you're betting with odds. I feel like it's, you know, but you, you all of a sudden now you have people like, ah, you know what, I'm good. I don't want to send up a pick in. Like, you know, it's a dollar, but you see sometimes people are like, ah, no, I'm good, I'm good. It's also a thank you also to everybody who, the fact that I had 18 different people do NFL picks on this podcast this year. Well, that's, hey, look, that's a solid roller that you got there, yeah. you know? Yeah, you got you to gotta keep it interesting. You can't bring the same people back all the time. No, like as, as as much as I'd like to believe that I've come on and, and done a nice job here, but you know, if it's me every time, people are gonna be like, I right, get this guy out of here, man. I need I need a little bit of you know difference in my life. Yeah, the original concept behind the set was to have one person do it with me every week. I'm like, you know, that's not as fun. Let's bring in some different pe- different voices, get some different perspectives from the NFL, and have some fun with this. Yeah, that, I mean, look, that, that, that's definitely the way to do it. And uh, you know, Mike, it's only been twice, but uh, both times have been a blast. Uh, I love what you do. I love coming on and. You know, hopefully uh, a third time's a charm. Who knows? Maybe next time, you know, we could be talking hoops, March Madness, whatever it may be. But uh, I'm, I'm hoping we, we, we can grab a third. Yeah, safe to say this will not be your last appearance on the podcast. 
<laughs> good, good. I'm holding you to it, man. All right. Before I before I let you go, don't let, let me know how to find on social media, how to keep up with you at SportsGrid. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, on Twitter, at the Kevin Walsh uh, is where you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, and there, you know, I'll tweet out thoughts on games, six different things, uh, et cetera. Uh, and then, of course, follow us at the SportsGrid, at SportsGrid on Twitter. Everything we're doing over there, man, streaming live on Zumo, Pluto. Uh, you can catch us on, on YouTube, of course, uh, if that's more accessible for you. Uh, and usually we're always tweeting out the links to the show and everything. Uh, the SportsGrid is growing, man. Uh, so, so people got to get on the grid while they still can. Yeah, people do have to get on the grid. I also want to ask you one more thing. Sure. Are you a Curb Your Enthusiasm fan? I tell you what, Mike, my brother's going to be disappointed in me. He's been telling me to watch this show for, it feels like, forever. And um, I told him, I keep telling him it's next. It's next when you do, like, you're, you know, you pick a show on Netflix, HBO, whatever it may. So I have seen a couple of episodes, like, sitting next to my brother as he watches it. But I am not someone who, and this is my own fault, has enjoyed Curb. Uh, from start to where they are currently. Well, uh, if you are, want to hear about the season 10 premiere, I'll actually be talking about it next on the podcast with our good friend, Martino Puccio. Oh, my love Martino, man. Um, tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll have to keep it stored up when I can finally find, my, uh, find myself caught up to everything curb. I'll go back and uh, I'll see myself uh, giving it a listen and maybe I'll text to both of you and let you know uh, if I agree with your takes on it or not. All right, Kevin's going to wait for that, but the rest of you can check it out right after this. All right, we are back here on the Just and the Suffering podcast. We just heard Michael Kay's historic call of Derek Jeter's 3,000 hits at Yankee, and I talked to me about this Hall of Fame class and some other stuff that's going on in the baseball world is the editor of Baseball Digest. I'm very happy to have on the line today, once again, Rick Cerrone. Rick, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Good morning, Mike. How are you today? Doing very good. It's always nice to have some new Hall of Famers in the baseball world. Well, it really is every day you're kind of renewed. And boy, did baseball need it this year. And did baseball need it to be someone like Derek Jeter? Yeah, Derek Jeter gets in. He gets all but one vote as somebody who is keeping an eye on these things. Should it bother people that he didn't get all all 397 votes? No, it shouldn't. Uh, and I'm not someone that's keeping an eye on these things because I don't concern myself with anything other than the the person gets 75% of the vote. Uh, I walked into my cigar club last night, and as I walked through the door, the first words out of somebody's mouth was, one vote, Rick, one vote. I'm like, you know, that's not the story here. You know, I don't know why that writer did it, um, whether he wanted to be the story, uh, although to my knowledge, he or she is still anonymous, whether that writer filed a protest ballot for some perceived... uh, something he did, he or she didn't like or decided, like many of them do, uh, I've got 10 guys and many of them are on their last year or going to be under the 5% and fall off the ballot. So I'll let other people take care of Derek Jeter. I'm going to take care of you know Bobby Abreu or somebody, uh, which I don't agree with. But it shouldn't matter to anybody. I mean, I've read some tweets on social media this morning that you know, what has happened to people? calling people names, uh, you know, idiot being the some idiot. You know what? Let's all settle down. He got all but one vote. That's that's fine. Derek Jeter doesn't isn't concerning himself with 
Um, bottom line is he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, and, you know, I, I knew that from probably I was thinking about when did it occur to you that you're watching a Hall of Famer? And it's probably right after the, the turn of the century, 2000, 2001, where I would say if this guy stays healthy, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, I was. I agree with that because I mean, Derek Jeter doesn't care if he got all all the votes. He's happy he's in there. And I mean, like, I didn't hear Hank Aaron complaining or Willie Mays complaining. I mean, then Derek Jeter isn't. But um, we're so fixated on this because of social media, uh, because of people being able to, you know, put their opinions out there on a somewhat national level um, without any thought without any concern about how their words are taken. Uh, people are really getting mean on social media. Uh, and that's not what this is supposed to be about. Um, there was a vote of however many people, almost 400 people. You know, you're supposed to get 75%. That's the story. He's a Hall of Famer. Let's move on. I agree. Let's move on. Let's talk more about Derek Jeter's career. And obviously, your, your time with the Yankees, you, can, you were there right when he was coming up, so... As far as Jeter is concerned, and my, 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 my first question basically is, like, what, do you have any fun stories from early in his career that, that you want to discuss? Well, you know, I met him in probably the first day of spring training in 1996 where he had had some experience the previous season. Uh, came up in May of 95. Um, I, I think the fun story is that um, Jeter, Derek said in his press conference on, or in his conference call that uh, you know uh, he kind of fell into the job when Tony Fernandez got hurt well my recollection is that Fernandez was going to play second base uh, in spring training when he broke his arm and it was just horrible I remember holding his other hand and on the training table uh, and he was in, in such pain and uh, you, you know Jeter in my opinion was was planned to be the shortstop for the 96 Yankees. And what I remember is I remember Joe Torrey coming back from like an organizational spring training meeting up in the conference room in brand new legends field. And he came into his office where I was sitting there waiting for him. I knew it would be a three hour meeting or something. So now I'm waiting in his office and he came down and he kind of, you know, with a pain look on his face, dropped his binder onto his desk and like shaking his head. And I said, what's up? Because would you believe what so-and-so just said up in this meeting? Now, this is one of Steinbrenner's inner circle uh, of, you know, former GMs, scouts, pitching coaches. He had a whole, you know, cabinet of people that would be in spring training. And he said, you know, he just said, we can't win with this kid Jeter at short. we got to go out and get a shortstop. And then for a while, there was that talk of that they were trying to get Felix Fermin, who was one of my guys in Pittsburgh, and I think now was with the Mariners, to play shortstop and the name being bandied about was Mariano Rivera. So thankfully Jeter was the opening day shortstop. We did not trade Mariano Rivera and the rest, as they say, is history. I can't imagine how different history would have been if they had made that trade, trade Rivera away and basically buried Jeter in the minor leagues for another year. Well, you know, I'll tell you another funny story. What to me is a funny story. So, um, I have a strong recollection that I want to say it was ESPN came to us in 96 and 97 to film TV spots, promoting the game on ESPN. You know, on, I think it was ESPN. 
And they used Paul O'Neill. They used Tino Martinez. My first year, I know they used Tino Martinez, and they had him in a psychiatrist's couch, which they filmed, and they made a little room into a psychiatrist's office. They took my family picture off my desk and said, we'll put this on the shelf. They decorated the set, and, and Martinez was supposed to be talking to this doctor about replacing Mattingly, okay? They had another one where Paul O'Neill was in a room full of gift boxes that he were designed to be given to opposing pitchers. Okay? I remember this distinctly. I also remember one of Derek Jeter being at his locker or something. This is 97, where a reporter is asking him about his rookie season and winning the rookie of the year. And Jeter's response is, well, I'm going to work really hard because I want to win that award again. And the reporter tells him, you can only win the award once. And Jeter gives a befuddled look. Cut back to a new shot of the locker where over his name is the name Jeterberg. And he's got like an, you know, like a, a wig on, you know, that to disguise his, uh, you know, to disguise his looks. I always called him Mr. Jeterberg. <laughs> I would go up to his locker and say, Mr. Jeterberg, can I have a minute? So. When they were doing stuff around his retirement, I mentioned this to somebody. Oh, I've got to find that. i got to find that. A number of people tried. I called ESPN. Nobody, there is no record of that. It's not like you can go to YouTube and find it, which you can for everything. So now I'm convinced that this thing is like the holy grail. It doesn't exist. So I see Jeter. I see Derek at a, when they, when they retired Joe Torrey's number, and I said, Derek, I have to ask you a question. He said, I said, do you remember that I would call you Mr. Jeterberg? He goes, yeah. I said, you know why I did that, right? He goes, no. I'm like, what? He says, I just thought it was you trying to be, you being you. And I said, no. And I told him about the commercial. And he goes, nah, don't remember it. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I must have hallucinated this. And then he says to me, you know, now you're mentioning this, it does kind of sound familiar. But anyway, I swear to God, Mike. We filmed this commercial, Jeterberg over his locker. He's wearing a wig, and I don't know whatever happened to it. So, Yeah, it's something I want to try and find. I'm going to make my mission today to go find on the internet and see if I can find that commercial. I don't think you're going to find it, but I, I'm telling you it does exist somewhere. Maybe someone has it, but I talked to ESPN. I talked to Fox, but, you know, getting back to Jeter, that I had the absolute honor to be around as the Yankees director of media relations for his first 11 years in the big leagues. I mean, I was there for his, you know, his first major league home run. I, my first game as PR director of the Yankees opening day in Cleveland, he hits the, the ball out to left center field with Phil Rizzuto making the call on, on television, which was an unbelievable moment. Um, I always tell people, Mike, that, they say, well, tell me about Derek Jeter. And I said, well, he had no use for me. What? You didn't get along? I said, no, we got along fine. But he was not the kind of guy that really needed my help. There was other players that would come to you all the time with questions. Or how do I, you know, if you're doing something, you're going to be the Sunday conversation. And they're going to tape it at 3 p.m. in the, the visiting locker room, in uh, the football locker room, in the Metrodome, um, for example. Well, that player might need you to hold his hand, tell him the day before, you know, 
Derek didn't need any of that. He didn't need memos left at his locker, which I traditionally did. You know, you boom, put every reminder, you three o'clock, you have this, you know, he, he didn't need that. Uh, he was his professional from day one. I never felt like he was a rookie. Uh, he conducted himself, and I think it goes back to his, his, his wonderful parents, uh, you know, Charles and, and Dorothy Jeter, uh, the way he and his sister were raised. Yeah, one thing I wanted to ask you about, I don't know if, if you were there when the decision was made, but when he comes up, they give him number two. Because at the time, they only had two single-digit numbers left that right. had been retired yet. Six goes to Joe Torre, two goes to Derek Jeter. Right. To me, that seemed like that seemed like a huge deal. That they must have thought that this that, uh, Jeter could be special. Yeah, you know, there is a story behind that. While why Nick Priori, uh, who was the clubhouse manager at the time, uh, gave him number two. Um, he was special. He was much hyped. But I'll tell you a funny story. Very early on in my my tenure with the Yankees, so it's 96, 96, probably, probably after 96 for this to have happened. Um, somebody got into the press box where my office was, you know, just some fan that went to the game and they had a bag with a photo and you know, you buy a framed photo, like a licensed photo of, you know, that's just, you're just paying a lot of money for a photo behind, you know, on a plaque or something. Well, the photo was of Derek Jeter. Right, an action like, and he was not wearing number two. He was, but it and it clearly was a major league game. It wasn't like he was with, the, you know, the Tampa Yankees or whatever. Uh, and he was wearing another number. And I, what I said to the person, I said, "Look, put this thing away, take it home. If you want to display it, display it. If not, it, you know, but this is going to be worth money someday because it's such an aberration. Jeter in another number. I don't remember what the story was, but." In this picture, at least, he's not wearing number two. But, you know, he was number two. Joe Torre was number six. And there went the single-digit numbers for the Yankees. Yeah, the way you describe it kind of reminds me of the times like when Michael George wearing number 45 for the Bulls. just looks so out of place. Well, here's another funny thing about it that I thought of even when when Jeter started wearing two. Number two was a an iconic number for an entire generation of young baseball fans. Every kid wanted to wear number two in the Little League or whatever the league they might have been in. When I was a kid, right, number two on the Yankees, and I was a big Yankee fan as a kid, was worn by the third base coach, their former player, Frankie Crosetti, who who wore the number since the 40s. You know, that was his number as a player after he he lost number one because he held out one spring to get back at him. When he finally showed up, they said, hey, by the way, you don't have number one anymore. You're, we gave it away. So from like 1945-ish or so till he left the Yankees after the 68 season, he was number two. This older gentleman, Frankie Crosetti, coaching third. Well, nobody wanted you know, you probably walk around and say, number two, I'll take number two for Frankie Crosetti. So where number two in my generation was a number you didn't want, now number two is an iconic, revered number that, Kids to this day probably still want. Yeah, it's going to be one that lives in Yankee hearts forever. Let's go on to the other member of this Hall of Fame class, which is Larry Walker. He barely gets right. in. He gets six. He gets six votes over the limit, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of controversy with him about of course field aid his offensive stats. Do you think that should be something yep. that was held against him in the voting process? 
I don't know. Did Shy Park, Baker Bowl, you know, help Jimmy Fox and Al Simmons? You know, I, I don't. You, you play in the ballpark you play in, right? And you can't say to somebody, uh, you know, you, you can't say to somebody, uh, hey, we, we want to acquire you, but, but but buyer beware, you'll never get in the Hall of Fame because the numbers you put up here, uh, you know, will you know are, are not going to be uh, credible with with Hall of Fame voters. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, Larry Walker hit, you know, 300 with the Montreal Expos. Uh, you know, if, if he was aided by the ballpark, I mean, Larry Larry Walker had 44 doubles in 1994, you know, in shortened season. Uh, you know, I mean, he wasn't playing in Coors Field. So uh, I, I just, I think that's all bunk. I really do. Uh, you know, your numbers are your numbers. Nobody plays in the same park. You know, people play at Fenway Park. People play Yankee. People are aided by Yankee Stadium. Are, are we going to start uh, judging left-handed hitters at, at, and their numbers at Yankee Stadium when we're looking at them for the Hall of Fame? No. Uh, so for for Coors Field to stand out and players be you know uh, uh, you know hurt by that, I, I don't I don't get it. Larry Walker's in. Todd Helton may get in as early as next year. I think he will eventually get in. Um, you know, that it took him till his 10th year on the ballot. You know, it took Ralph Kiner till his 15th year on the ballot. Same with, you know, Burt Blyleffen. Uh, people look at careers differently over time. I've looked at people's careers differently over time. I mean, you take Jim Rice, for example. You know, Jim Rice's numbers to some people were not Hall of Fame until you realize he did it in a pre steroid era, and they're pretty spectacular. They hold up pretty well. So upon uh, putting it in perspective, yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. But Larry Walker's in. Congratulations. God bless you. Uh, enjoy it. It's, it's an unbelievable moment. It must be tough for nine years thinking you have a chance uh, and not getting in. So I'm so happy that he's in. Yeah, it's going to be nice to see him get in. You mentioned next year's ballot. I looked ahead. There's no <laughs> there's no slam dunk candidate on it. There's no. no Jeter. There's no Rivera coming up for election next year. So how many people do you think will actually get in next year? Well, I think Kurt Schilling will get in next year unless he says something you know, that he'll regret. Although I don't know if he regrets what he says. But I think if, if Kurt Schilling has a year of peace uh, on social media and whatever, um, I, I think you know, with 70% of the vote, he's getting in. I, I think the steroids era players, um, you know, let's say headed by Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, they've got two good breaks coming in that one next year. You have no, you have no one on the ballot for the first time that's getting in. You know, there's no Derek Jeter on the bar- ballot. There's no Mariano Rivera. I don't think there's anybody that will be on the ballot for the first time next year that will get in. That will that will make it a little easier for Schilling, Bonds, and Clemens. Um, the next year is Bonds and Clemens' last year on the ballot, and I think, like Larry Walker, they tend to go up. But you just don't know because there might be people that are not changing their vote you know, based on it's their last year. And there might be people who say, listen, I, I gave you a 10 year, 10 years in purgatory. And now I'm going to put you in. So I think those, those three people jump out at, at me as who can most benefit by this. Yeah, that makes some sense. I just can see what happens in the next two years. 
Before I let you go, I do want to touch on a couple of the a little bit of the sign stealing scandal. So, as somebody who's been around baseball for your entire life, like, what's your big takeaway of this electronic sign stealing thing? Well, when this started to break months ago, I was on a New York radio station and was asked about this, and basically said, "I can't see how there's anything here because it's it. What I'm reading is just so utterly ridiculous." And I said, look, this is what you're saying. You're going to get all the hitters together, and I'm sure your pitchers will know about this. And you're telling them that we've got a camera in center field, and we've got a way to transmit to you by banging on a garbage pail when a certain pitch is coming. And the catcher will be the only one that can hear this. Like, I mean, the, the batter. The catcher's not going to hear it and say, wait, what's up here? Uh, you're never going to trade a player, release a player. You're never going to have a disgruntled player that's going to leave your organization and you know, spill the beans. I said, this thing is so ludicrous, it can't be true. Well, it was. And almost to the very degree that I poo-pooed, it, it was true. Uh, this is really bad for baseball. This is really, really bad. Uh, when you and, and I think the commissioner did the absolute right thing uh, with, with the penalties both the monetary penalty to the club, the loss of draft picks. Uh, it, it was basically once I knew that this thing was legit, I, you know, I, it was pretty much what I thought the penalties were, were going to be. Penalties still to come for uh, Alex Cora. I don't believe it'll be any less than the year uh, that Hinch got. Um, and and Lunel, uh, a manager w- w- with great respect as a player, and Carlos Beltran, you know, doesn't even make it to opening day. Uh, it's really bad, but I think the commissioner did his best to stop the bleeding. And now I believe more has to be done. There needs to be more deterrence. Whether you lay out that these will be the penalties and the penalties are stiffer for anything like this, but I think you got to make it harder to pull stuff like this off. Uh, there's just too much access during the game to video, in my opinion. Um, and I think that that's, that's got to listen, I am a, and I, I wrote this last year, Mike, based on just pace of play. I'm just tired of every play. The manager holds up his hand and I'll let you know when we can continue because we got to look at that nothing play to see if the guy, you know, actually did not beat the throw to first base. Okay. The guy watching it on replay, uh, says we can play on, we're not challenging. Uh, you know, you, I, I'm just tired of that. Uh, I think that they do it with, without, with impunity. Uh, they can do it on every play. Um, and I, I think that's got to stop because you can't be calling someone watching the game on video. You can't. Now because you can. who knows what else he's telling that guy in the dugout. Hey, uh, he's safe. Don't don't challenge the call. But hey, check out the picture. Every time he does this, can't happen. Got to stop. Yeah, I think we're going to eventually see a point where we ban technology in the dugout during games. I could even see them possibly just taking the replay out of the manager's hands and putting it as sort of like an umpire upstairs or in Chelsea no, just doing that. I don't think you'll take it. A, listen, for 100 years, the manager went out and kicked dirt and threw second base and whatever on what he thought he saw with his naked eye. You know, I, I just... I just think it's hard to believe that they would ever remove, once technology gets in, that it would ever be removed. 
But I really believe that once the game starts, you got to shut it down. You got to shut it down in the clubhouses, you know, from the dugout. You just got to shut it down. Sorry. All right, that's that's an interesting take. And my last question is obviously you brought Carlos Beltran. Did you feel like mm-hmm. he was a player for times? Obviously, he was not as involved as like management was in terms of directing everything. Do you think he should have been let go by the Mets? I don't know what his involvement was as a player. You know, and I'm not making accusations, but we don't know. He could have been. He could have drawn it up for all we know. But I think that he was involved to a degree where. He was mentioned in the report, the only player that was. Um, he was not penalized by baseball. Obviously, and, and look, Mike, the Mets did not want to dismiss Carlos Beltran. I mean, my goodness, this is the guy they wanted. They loved him. So they obviously felt we, we've got to cut the ties here. So, you know, the Mets don't always make the right decision. I, 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 I can't tell you that letting Carlos Beltran go was the wrong decision. I can't say that. Yeah, I got the sense. I agree with you. I thought they wanted to do it, but the turning point, I think, was when they went to the commissioner's office, uh, Jeff Wolpott and Brody Van Wagen. Apparently, they were told that Carlos is more involved than they thought. I think that's right when the tide turned for him. Yeah, I, I'm sure it did. I, I'm sure it did. Uh, you know, I mean, I think they wanted any reason possible not to have to do this. It just it just wasn't there. I mean, and they and the other thing is, you start thinking, well, what what's going to get out, you know? And when did, and who knew what when? Because if it gets out that let's say they find out that he had a larger role than was laid out, if if that gets out in July and they're now they're asking questions about, wait a second, now you find out that he did this, and you, I think they just wanted a fresh start. Yeah. But see, I think I think it, and look, we could. I could be proven wrong. I think that the teams that are looking for new managers, and right now today there's three of them, I think to put this behind the organization, you've got to have someone with great credibility. And I don't think there's, I don't think there's a first-year manager out there that's got great credit or any credibility as a manager. I mean, you hire Buck Showalter, you hire Dusty Baker, you hire Bruce Bochy, you hire Mike Sosha, you hire John Gibbons. You've put this behind you. You know, they might just be a placeholder or a caretaker, but I, I, I just don't think that, uh, you know, you got to be really good to be a first-year manager and step into this beehive. I agree with that. Rick, thanks for all the time taking, to take, talking to me today. I know you got to run because you're getting to the Hall of Fame press conference this afternoon. Before I let you go, do you want to let everybody know all the great stuff you're doing for Baseball Digest and how people can get copies of it? Well, thank you, Mike, for that compliment. Uh, you know, Baseball Digest, which is better than ever uh, in its 79th year, uh, on the newsstands now at all Barnes & Nobles and major newsstands. Uh, Pete Alonzo on the cover, uh, and very happy to be, I'm told. Um, and you can subscribe by going to BaseballDigest.com. Uh, our preview issue, uh, which will address this uh sign stealing scandal uh will be on newsstands march 5th so uh look for that and go to barnes and noble all right i'll be sure to pick up a copy rick thanks again for the time i really appreciate it okay mike thanks all right and there you have it that was rick sarone talk about the baseball hall of fame class a little bit about the sign stealing stuff as well some interesting stuff for sure up next show me the money super bowl gambling edition with kevin walsh jr right after this 
All right, and that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Rick Cerrone, for calling in to talk about the Baseball Hall of Fame class. Share some great stories about Derek Jeter. I also want to thank Kevin Walsh Jr. for calling in to talk about all the different ways you could bet on Super Bowl 54. And Martina Puccio for hopping on the line to talk about the Curb Your Enthusiasm season premiere. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. Simply search for Just End the Suffering on any of those platforms. You can find all of our episodes there, including last week's bonus episode about the sign-stealing scandal in baseball. Rick talked about it a little bit in his interview. I spent a full 45 minutes discussing it with the baseball beat, Will Schneiderhand and Anthony Sorbolini. So feel free to go check it out if you want even more stuff on the sign-stealing. Feel free to leave your feedback and star ratings as well, and I'll make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet with the hashtag Jeterberg. You made it at the end of this week's show. Again, hashtag Jeterberg. You made it at the end of this week's show. Next week, it's our Super Bowl episode of the podcast. I'm going to be previewing the Super Bowl with Daryl Slater of the Star-Ledger, making Super Bowl picks with Nick Frietta, and more. Until then, I'll be a better week than Titans fans. Yeah, yeah.